and then along to Kucherov and then fed to Johnson, but swept away again by the reach of Hornquist. Crosby steps back in and he got loose. Score! Sidney Crosby! And it's three to nothing. All right, we are here today. It is the spring of will we be here or will we not be here? Yeah. I remember when I first started this, I think I said, we we talked about this. I said, one thing I want to do for sure is whatever we say we're going to do, we need to do it. Well, we said 40 shows, right? I think it was Yeah, kind of an- <laughs> I think that's generally what we do a year. Right. And it's just, and and I think we are doing what we said, and I'll just say it again. It's just going to be a spring where we just don't know. Right. Week to week if we'll be here or not. You know, Michelle has concerts. We had concerts. Your daughter's playing soccer. Yep. I'm going to have a daughter. So there's just a lot of balls in the air that we can't necessarily predict when they're going to drop. That's right. So, but we are here today uh, having returned from Pearl Jam, uh, which we enjoyed thoroughly. Two great trips. Um, I realized a couple of days after that we missed a great opportunity to record ourselves kind of talking about the shows in the car on the way home when yeah, everything was we had fresh nothing but time, right? Yeah. And then bringing that to the pod. Uh, so we'll have to do that, uh, for Fenway in the spring. But, uh, yeah, I think we enjoyed the shows and, um, we come back today on what is Verducci day. And it's interesting with Tom Verducci because I know I've told this story before that Sports Illustrated said you can have anyone on a roster but don't expect him because he gets very focused on his job and he turns down Mike Francesa and Dan Patrick and requests like that. So I don't think he's ever going to accept yours. And they're interesting because what I'll do – is just every three or four months, I'll email him and I'll say, I really loved your article, whether you've really written one or not. Uh, in this case, he had just authored a piece that ran on the cover about Vin Scully. Of course, the 90-year-old Dodgers announcer who's taking his farewell tour this year very reluctantly. Uh, but um, I'll write him and I'll say, I really like that. I'd love to talk to you about it. And... Six out of seven of those don't get answered. Okay. Then two or three of them get answered with a really polite no that doesn't make any sense. And that was the case this time. So I sent him an email, say, on Monday. The following Friday, he responds to me and says, oh, thanks for enjoying it, but I'm on the way to Houston today, so I'm not going to be able to do it. (laughs) You know, it's not as if I had specified that day or any day. Uh, so this time I just wrote back to him and said, well, enjoy Houston. Maybe we can talk when you get back. And he kind of maybe reluctantly wrote back and said, all right, you know, <laughs> Monday at six or something. So Verducci is in. It's his fourth time. And I will say that he didn't have the best connection at first. Okay. Uh, which is always an interesting predicament for us. Because I know if we were Dan Patrick, we would tell him, look at dude, you, your connection is no good. Right. We can't put you on like this. But we're not. <laughs> 
And at six o'clock yesterday, when it was time to call him, I had to take it as is. Sure. Uh, but it improves pretty quickly. It was just the first couple minutes. Uh, it sounds like he has his windows open while he's driving. Oh, like, okay. did you ever talk to someone on their sure. cell phone? Yeah. Now, that's what it kind of sounded like. And then it just stopped. So I wondered if that's exactly what it was. For some reason, he had the windows down. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Tom Verducci's on the show today. And also, uh, there's a little bit of fluidity. Uh, because of when we're recording and the status of the four big playoff series. You know, it was sort of hard to know exactly who the next best guest would be. Would it be a basketball spot because the Warriors went out? Or would it be a hockey spot because we have cup matchup already or what? So I'm not going to announce today as we record who the uh, second guest is, but the show will start uh, with Tom Verducci. It's season six, episode 15. Seemed like for a while we were... Stuck on 14? Or... We were building up quickly. Now it seems oh, okay. like from 12 to 15 has been really slow. Sure. Uh, we record on May 25th, 2016. Anthony's 25th birthday and Kurt's 24th birthday? You think he's the same as Josh? Oh, he's older than Anthony? Yeah, I think they're... So then he's 26, 26 today? 26, yeah. We both have birthdays with... Brothers with birthdays today. Yeah, I think that's right. Nobody cares, though. So let's start <laughs> the show with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, we'll, we'll start with the NHL version of the playoffs. We played the highlight off the top. Sidney Crosby's not scoring a million goals, but he's scoring game winners. That's his second game winner yeah. uh, in the conference finals. He had an overtime winner, and the game winner last night is actually a goal that made it 3 nothing. And you were kind of saying how you've been a little bit bored uh, with this round. Well, with the kids especially, like, you, you don't – I mean, sometimes maybe uh, a score can be deceiving, but you, you sit down – to watch the beginning of a game and you kind of have a feel for it the, the whole way through. But I might be catching the game like midway through the second because I got to put the kids to bed or something like that. And if I flip the game on it, it's already 3 nothing or 4 nothing, Then it's like, uh, I guess I'll stick with it for a little bit. But I mean, how long am I really going to watch a blowout? And it seems like uh, a lot of the games, even though the series are so close, have been not that entertaining. Yeah, it hasn't been. I don't think we're going to look back on 2015 and say, hey, do you, 16, conference do you remember the conference finals? Yeah. You know, part of it is the teams are not that sexy, and that's going to be a huge problem potentially in both leagues when you get to the finals. I mean, there was an ex, there was a thought that St. Louis could bring a pretty big national number. The Western Conference finals are down almost 40%. Okay, you just mean like geographically, like it, they're not big cities or anything like that. I mean, they're just not sexy franchises. The St. Louis Blues are not a sexy no, franchise. No, right. Yeah, and the Sharks are, are a bit of a, a bandwagon franchise, I think, at this point. And they're all the way to the west. I mean, they're, right. you know, yeah. they're falling off the, the, the flat earth over there. Right. Um, but the conference finals in the west are way down ratings-wise. But one of those teams has to represent uh, the, the league and the cup. And then the other team has to be Pittsburgh if the NHL wants to avoid 
probably the lowest rated Stanley Cup final since Calgary and Tampa Bay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so we'll see how they how that goes in terms of ratings. In terms of games, to me at this point, it sort of feels like it's San Jose's to lose. Uh, and I only say that because I feel like their stars have been the best. Right, sure. You know, the Pavelski, Couture, Marlowe, Thornton, Burns, the core of guys who have failed so many times almost seemed like they're looking at this like, if we fail now, we'll never, this is it. And I think that gives them a little bit of an edge. St. Louis may have just been guilty of being the team that was in the best division and exhausted themselves trying to outlast Chicago and Dallas in two seven-game series. Yeah, and Tarasenko hasn't been. And Tarasenko's been bottled up in this series. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, they're they're scrappy. They've played hard, uh, but their stars aren't scoring. And like you said, they might just be gassed. They've and had the toughest road. Unexplicably, they're playing their backup goalie. Yeah. You know, it just there's no reason that Allen has been playing. Right. You know. Elliot's been the guy. He's got him there. Elliot will start game six. Which, I mean, thank right, God. Right, why? I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, why, why wait? Why he wasn't. And most likely, uh, Kenny Albert, who's been calling this series uh, for NBC Sports, will be with us on this show. But, yeah, looking at the uh, the box scores, that series, five of the six games so far, or four of the five games have been three-goal. Not memorable. Or more. Yeah. I mean, some of them were multiple Empty matters, but they just haven't been that close since game one. In the East, obviously, a little bit more um, exciting with Pittsburgh and Tampa. You know, the series started with the crazy game one and the Callahan hits and the Bishop injury that is really weird because they say the x-ray was negative and then they said the MRI is fine, but so they're just saying he's got a lower leg injury, but it's some kind of lower leg injury that doesn't come up on an X-ray or an MRI, and I don't. I just I think they're that they're bullshitting. I guess <laughs> you know I just yeah. or he's just the most dramatic drama queen in the history of hockey. Like because I mean he was crying and flopping around on the ice. He needed to be carried onto a stretcher, and then there's just all that and no injury. I don't know. I find it suspicious, and he did. There's a show on uh, Showtime, Don. It's a huge disappointment. I may tackle it in one last thing. It's called, like, Chasing the Cup or something, and it's a 24-7 style okay. uh, look at the conference finals, and it's going to follow them to the finals. It's only a half an hour long. There's way too many on-ice highlights. Mm. There's almost nothing to the show. It, it sucks. Um, but one thing they did show was Bishop getting dressed in his bottoms – with a hoodie, going out on the ice, taking about a half a lap and leaving. And then Stamkos is like, that's it? You put all your gear on for that? That's all? <laughs> like Stamkos was chirping him a little bit. So um, it looked like whatever he felt on the ice was, you know, no good. I'm sort of surprised Stamkos hasn't been out yeah. yet. Um, uh, but I guess he's just not ready. And... Um, it still feels like the last game the Penguins lost, you know, Latang was like minus four in the game. Right. You know, it still feels like their best guys haven't been their best yet. And they're one way 
one win away from the cup and <laughs> also one loss from falling short. So it's an interesting game seven. I, I don't know if I had to pick it. I think I'd pick Pittsburgh. You're home. But just just barely. Yeah. And you could probably talk me into – you could probably talk me pretty easily into Tampa. I'm trying to th- – I'm looking at the splits real quick here. One and one. The road teams have done great yeah, the in the playoffs all year. Yeah. Um, they only won in the 30s all playoffs last year, and they're well into the 40s hmm. uh, this year in terms of road wins. So road teams have done good. Um, but I still think if your season starts and someone tells you you get one game at home for a cup. chance to go to the cup, you take that. Oh, yeah. And um, and and even if they say the opposite, you get one game on the road for a chance to go to the cup, Tampa would take that too. Uh, but Tampa does feel like the more battered team. They feel more like the Sabres than the Hurricanes to make a – uh, 2006 uh, Eastern Conference Finals analogy. Yeah, they sure could have used Stamkos to come back, like just some sort of lift at this point. But one thing we'll see. is Jonathan Druin has been absolutely awesome, and boy, did they dodge a bullet that they did not trade him. Yeah, no kidding, because, I mean, they're probably going to have to lose we, Stamkos. We would have been mocking them for years like we mocked Boston yep. with Sagan if they would have made the mistake and traded uh, Jonathan Druin. Anything else on hockey? No. We'll move on to basketball, which is really the the shock of all shocks. I don't know. I just didn't. I just didn't see this coming. I guess. You know, as we talk, Golden State is down three to one, and they're getting beat badly. The score in the last two games. The final scores are 133-105 and 118-94. Didn't we read somewhere that someone said that Oklahoma City doesn't have stars or something like that? Like, Didn't somebody kind of... If anyone said that, I mean they're idiots. I know, they I know. two of the I biggest thought, stars in the I, league. I, I so. thought we heard... I thought we made a comment about that a few back. Yeah, I mean... Right, they're probably the second best team in the league if it wasn't the Spurs. We've talked all along on this show when we've talked about basketball about how the interesting thing in the West is they had a three seed that would be like a one seed in a lot of years. Right. And Oklahoma has just hit their stride. And Russell Westbrook and Durant are playing well together. And I've watched a lot of these games because you just you turn it on, and it's like you say with the hockey, but you turn it on and you see the deficit that Golden State's in, and you it draws you to it. Yeah. It's like... So why really? has it happened? What, someone smarter than me is basketball. Like, why has this happened? What? Well, I mean, I'm probably only a little bit smarter than you, and I can tell you one reason is Steph Curry doesn't look like Steph Curry. Whoops. You know, he's not scoring at the pace he used to. Um, and they just don't have any answer on the defensive end for, for Oklahoma City's offense. That's the number one thing. When you're giving up 133, 118-plus points a game, I mean, clearly, you're not doing much on the defensive end. You know, they lost game one. They gave up 108 points. The only game they didn't give up 100 in was the one they won, and they gave up 91 in that one. Um, So, look at when you've won 73 games, nobody's going to count you out until you've lost four, right? Nobody's going to sit here and say, oh, Oklahoma, you're you're in the finals. It just... Yeah, it's ugly. But it just feels bad for... For them, and I remember Steve Kerr many times over the years said, "I'd love to p- 
pull it back a little bit. But they want to go oh, for this. Right, yeah. And I can't I can't tell them not to go for it. And I wonder if ultimately that's going to cost them. There was no pressure on the Thunder that last month or two. My next question, I mean, before looking at the scores and talking about the scores and how they can't play defense, my next question was just did Steph Curry do something even for the, an entire season that was just unsustainable? But it doesn't matter. They're getting – they're not – playing defense they're not keeping them to under 100 yeah and you know people have brought up his injuries he was amazing in game two yeah so unless there was some injury in game two or in the beginning of game three it's hard to use that as an excuse Mm -hmm. he was healthy enough to score i think 40 in game two or something like something great he had a great game in game two you know it's just like they got to oklahoma uh you know oklahoma was able to steal one and then they got to Oklahoma, and just the wheels just seem to have fallen off the bus. And it's going to be up to Kerr and Curry and Thompson, the leaders of that team, uh, to try to get them back on. And the, the the margin of error is zero at this point. That'll really be too bad if they can't pull it out. I mean, that's that's the that's the eighteen and one Patriots right there. Yeah, but worse because one game, crazy wonky things happened. Right, like the guy cut the ball on the side of his helmet. Right. You know, this is uh, right. a team like that just getting beat and beat hard night in and night out. The other side of the bracket, Cleveland looked like they were on vacation. They're sitting; they were sitting ten and zero in the playoffs. Um, and Toronto uh, was awesome the last couple games at home. Uh, we were in Toronto. We saw the. Bu- I felt the buzz for the team a little bit. Yeah, sure. The way the, the arena was decorated, and you knew something special was happening for their basketball team. It's always interesting when we go to the different arenas. Like, remember when we were in Washington? It's like the Capitals play here because right. you just couldn't tell. Far more logos for their WNBA team than for the Capitals. Right. This is like the start during the Ovechkin of era. The Ovechkin. Yeah, it was 2008. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you could tell. Uh, that something was going on there. And I wonder if it's just going to be that they're going to be a really difficult team to beat at home. Uh, I still think Cleveland, although, you know, Kevin Love, what's his status? Because he didn't play the fourth quarter of game four. Uh, and the fourth quarter of game four was close. And I kept waiting for LeBron James to just kind of take the game over. And he never did. It was almost like he didn't, he didn't even really take a shot. And the guards uh, for Toronto... Uh, have been uh, dazzling. Uh, looked awesome. So, like we talked about, a ratings disaster for the NHL potentially. Just a week ago, the NBA was thinking, "Man, we're going to have Golden State Cleveland Part Two, and maybe we have the highest rated final we've had in 20 years." And if they ever got Toronto versus OKC, uh, we'd be talking about a very, very poorly rated final uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, interesting couple of days uh, for both leagues. Speaking of an interesting couple of days, the Buffalo Bills have had two pretty bad ones, especially from the PR side. Let's start with their GM, Doug Whaley, who yesterday uh, said essentially that football isn't for humans. Yes, and I have no problem with him saying that. Uh I have more of a problem with the retraction today. I think somebody got to him from the league probably and said that because it's, I mean, he's essentially saying guys are putting themselves in harm's way. So So they're talking about Sammy Watkins. 
and whether or not he was injury prone. That's how the discussion started. Okay. You know, as him and reporters were discussing Watkins and if he's injury prone, and he said something like, I wouldn't say he's injury prone. If you look at his game log, he's only missed three games, so he, is he injury prone? I wouldn't say that. Are things going to come up with a guy like this? We hope that gets limited in the future. Um, and then he, he got on and he dropped the bomb of saying, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, if Whaley is guilty of anything, and I'm not going to be an apologist too much for the Bills. They've been terrible forever. But, I mean, if he's guilty of anything, it's maybe not being coached up enough on how to say nothing. You know what I mean? Because he's a guy that will actually say things and he gets in trouble for it. I'm trying to th- – uh, I'm blanking on the last thing he said, but it wasn't that – oh, uh at one point at a press conference a while back, he said you could blame me for EJ Manuel, which can't be great okay. if you're EJ Manuel <laughs> to hear that. And, I mean, you're kind of admitting that you had to do with that draft, even though there was another general manager there. Whatever. The exact and, quote, the bomb, was this is the game of football. Injuries are part of it. It's a violent game that I personally don't think humans are supposed to play. Right. So, it's and he even said today it's a poor choice of words, but he's right. I mean, you've got – the freakish biggest humans in like a guy like Rob uh, Gronkowski and he cannot stay healthy. So if a guy like him is, cannot take the impact of football, uh, they're right. I mean, the onion waiting on this too. God said the human body is not designed to play football. <laughs> so, uh, God agrees with Doug Whaley. There's I don't a- have a problem with that really. I mean, he was asked to make a comment. He kind of rambled on a little bit and he stuck his foot in his mouth and then he has to, the more embarrassing part is today that he had to backtrack paired speech or whatever. There's actually an essay, which I believe is an excerpt of the new Chuck Klosterman book in GQ. And it's about some comments that Malcolm Gladwell made, I guess, essentially saying that eventually no one will play football. Right. And it kind of goes into like looking at whether that's the case or not. And I don't know if that will ever happen, but I will say this. It's to the point where nobody can say they don't know the risks. That is absolutely true. And you get a lot of people that say, like, I don't feel bad for these guys. Now they know the risk. They make a ton of money to do it. I would do it. But it's not about it's not about the Tom Brady's of the league that make a load of money. It's about the guys that play four or five years of college football, never make it anywhere, and then – just flame out and have to deal with like CTE and stuff. That's the stuff I would look at when putting my kid into football pads. It it, is nothing to do with like, cause that is unrealistic to say like, okay, I'm going to weigh the benefits of football against or the, but you should know if you're the 52nd man on Western Kentucky university, you're not going to make those millions. No, you do. Right. I'm not saying that um, he doesn't know that I'm saying that's why as a parent, they're going to be less and less kids in football. Yeah, hey, parents are going to have to make decisions with their kids about whether they play. Right. And there is already, you know, plenty of ways to play safer at younger ages. Sure. You know, not really getting into tackle football until late in middle school or into high school. Right. You know, playing flag football and developing skills and stuff instead of hitting. Um, but I will say that, you know, like – there's other jobs besides football that are similar to this. It's not as glamorous. Like there's engineers who go over to Iraq sure. and make three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year for four or five years 
uh, to do some engineering work there that would they get paid fifty thousand here for, but it's a dangerous job. Right. You know, there's oil field jobs in Canada. I used to work hockey schools with a kid who during the winter would go into Alberta and do like the most dangerous job at the oil fields in Alberta, and he said he did it because they paid $90,000 to him to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, And the reason it paid so much is because of how dangerous it was and how hard it was to get people to do it. Yeah, I just think at a young age, I mean, I think for the most part, the odds of you making the NFL are slim. If you even make it, the career, your average career is like, what, three years, four years? So, I mean... And that's another thing that people know. Right. There's plenty of statistics. Nobody's saying to them... Hey, if you make this league, you're probably going to play 15 years and make 100 million. I'm just ba- saying to the Gladwell thing, that's where I agree with him. I think there's going to be less and less people putting their kids into football. So, and that's where it starts. I mean, right now, right now football is what I wonder. Do no though. wrong organization, and it's run that way too. Like from the top, by like Goodell and everybody, they run it like they are indestructible. And I just, I think they're, they're, they have to be careful. They're close. Will what you're saying? Bear true and the lower income, yeah, that higher risk know. areas of the country. I don't know. I mean, people play the lottery, and it's a stupid thing to do. What I mean is, like, where football is viewed as a way out, as a chance to live a better life, will people be making that decision? Well, that's what I mean. The people most, like, the people that should least be playing the lottery, like, play, it the, least most. play it the most, and that's maybe what you do when you put your kid into football. Like, maybe, just maybe, he can be the next so-and-so that got out of the slums or ghetto or whatever to make something better of himself i mean yeah there, i just think there will be rules i think football is going to be looked totally different 10 or 15 years down the road when my kid would be playing it or at a serious level than it does now well the other less serious but maybe more silly aspect of the two-day yeah this PR is the nightmare the bills for. for the bills is apparently they have a very strict new media policy uh, that includes the Bills telling the media that they don't want them reporting on drop passes or interceptions, interceptions yeah. at practice. And that was almost like uh, one of the reporters for the Bills, one of the beat reporters, tweeted out a picture of the media guy. Yeah, it was I'm almost lo- like I'm looking at it right here. That was like line item like three C. Like they almost hid that in there, kind of like people wouldn't notice that. And that's a huge deal. Here's some stuff that's strictly prohibited. Referencing run plays or game strategy, including trick plays or unusual formations. I get that. Not that I like it, but teams are weird about stuff like that. Uh, reporting on personnel groupings, sub packages, players who are practicing with individual units. Like, I guess you can't say, hey, Sammy Watkins was out there with the second unit today. Sure. Okay. I mean, that stuff all sounds like stuff you hear from over. Uh, private teams like you get that in hockey with like the upper body or lower body injury type stuff so but that quote goes on to say yeah players who are practicing with uh, individual units special plays who is rushing the passer drop passes interception yeah that's completion the... percentage by the qb etc those ones have that's where i have a real no, i have a problem with all of it i don't think other coaches are looking at other teams beat reporters trying to figure out like the bills schemes or anything but i mean I guess there's an argument out there for that. You can not report. Not saying EJ Manuel threw an interception on the first play has nothing to do with strategy. Like, so then they talk about injuries. Injuries that occur during practices open to the public can be reported. 
Media should not report on any injury situation occurring during a practice that is not open to the public with detailed speculation to the potential nature, severity of the injury, or level of practice participation. Acknowledging an injury occurred is permitted, but anything beyond a general report would be purely speculative and possibly inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the local radio channel had Joe Biscalia, and he's a really good beat reporter for the Bills, and uh, he's gone on to do TV work now. But uh, he said, like... They have like backed off that a little bit, but they haven't like printed an official like redaction of what they wrote. So they might have backed off what they said, but like if they don't like what you wrote, are they going to point back at the thing and be like, "No, we told you this earlier." And some people have said it might even be against uh I'm not sure whose policy, like but it might even be against NFL policy to put out something like this tim graham tweeted and now to open practice let's hear it for your buffalo bills and there's a picture of uh the dictator from north korea's <laughs> limousine going down the street with a giant picture of him yeah. above uh, I, I saw uh, i'm not a fan of his uh the espn mike rodak mike rodak he was tweeting yeah i got a few like, of them here uh, yeah okay go ahead if the bills prohibit interceptions and drop passes from being reported then touchdowns and catches will not be reported either. I'm having trouble confirming whether the Bills are holding OTAs today. Not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> a former Bills running back who wore number 34 and might be a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame is watching practice today. Yeah, and he wrote some other things about how like the last pass not or the last interception not thrown by a guy named Taylor or like he, they just went around the rules like the square root of 25 through the last interception. A QB just threw a pick six on his first pass in 11 on 11. It wasn't Taylor or Jones. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what are the Bills going to do? What are they? And this seems like that part looks really bad. Cause like I said, if you're panicky about like strategy or whatever, I, I don't agree with that, but I, I guess I can see where you're coming from, but this is to do what protect their quarterback's ego. Like <laughs> I, I don't understand if, if their, if their quarterbacks are that fragile, the bills have a way bigger problem than them throwing interceptions in practice. I brought up a, uh, an article that kind of, you know, got all these quotes together and the article ends with this sentence. The Bills will surely take a huge step forward and reach the Super Bowl with this new policy in place. Period. <laughs> That's how the article ends. Exactly. And you can find that on Fox Sports. All right. The music has ended minutes ago. That means enough of us. It's time for Ducci time. All right, our next guest is from East Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Penn State. In 1993, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He is one of baseball's best writers and is one of the best television analysts as well. He's making his fourth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Tom Verducci. How are you doing today, Mr. Verducci? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, we always love having you on, and I have so much uh, to talk to you about. We might as well start right with uh, the Vince Scully piece that you had. Uh, really cool to see an SI cover with Vince Scully on it. You know, obviously his last year. And I was just thinking as I was reading it and thinking about you writing it and uh, watching the video of you uh, interviewing him and watching videos of you talking about interviewing him. I just kind of wanted to get a little bit of perspective of 
what writing this story meant to you and what, as you said, as far as you know, being the only, you know, televised interview he was going to do. Uh, what did it mean to you? What, how did it feel for you to be the one that was, uh, that had his ear and were able to answer those questions and write that piece? Well, it's funny because somebody at SI asked me about a year ago, you know, that I've written a lot of stories about different players and teams and events. Uh, if there was anything that was really on my list that I hadn't gotten to. And Ben Scully was the first one that came to my mind. And especially knowing after he said 2016 would be his final season, I knew my opportunities uh, now had a clock on them. So, you know, I went in there wanting to understand how Ben has been so good for so long. I mean, no one has to tell me how good he is. And, uh, and that, that was kind of... My objective starting out was not to compile a bunch of greatest hits of Vince Scully or a bunch of tributes to Vince Scully. We all know he's great. My objective was, you know, let me find out what Ben thinks of himself. And it's probably his least favorite subject, but to get him to talk about himself was really my objective going in. And, and actually a personal curiosity as well, because um, I wanted to know myself, you know, how he could greatness for so long and also to get to know him a little bit better so to me I think it was sure it was a professional honor to write the story but it was really a personal honor as well I thought it was really interesting too how the story came together and you mentioned how trying to get Vince Scully to talk about Vince Scully is a challenge but you kind of write I was kind of thinking of it thinking of it like a picture you kind of wrote into the story how there was a couple times where it was like you'd almost try to sneak the slider by him. You know what I mean? Like, and, and you painted that out in the story about how, okay, here's an opportunity. I'm going to go for it. Um, and I thought that was really interesting how you kind of illustrated his reluct- reluctancy through kind of the technique that you used to try to break down the wall a little bit. Yeah, and I think with a lot of stories that I do, depending on what the subject is, whether it's a you know a trend or a person, I try to go about it in a way that does justice to that person. So in this case, we're talking about someone not just a great baseball broadcaster, but you know a very learned person, uh, a man of manners in an age where we seem to be losing a lot of those things. So. You know, I wanted to honor who Vince Scully is, not just his career, but kind of approaching it the same way. And, um, you know, that was a challenge to do. But it's sort of like listening to Vince Scully call a game where you do feel like you're sitting next to a friend. He just has a way of putting you at ease. And, of course, even just the sound of his voice and the cadence where nothing is hurried, everything is well thought out, that played into it as well. So... It was, I like to say, a conversation more than an interview. Yeah, and, and you know, I was thinking about some of the things that he said, and, and I had heard uh, Cameron Crowe uh, was talking about working on the Pearl Jam 20 documentary. Don't know if you've seen it, but he said that when he was organizing things for it, that there was this piece of video of Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain hugging under the stage at the VMAs, and that was kind of like the, the crown jewel of the piece, and when I was reading your article, I kind of got that feeling when I was reading him recall the story after the World Series that the Dodgers had lost. Uh, and he talks about having to walk through the outfield and, and go 
into the clubhouse and then into the training room and how uh, was Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese were in there and how they, he was just kind of almost like a fly in the wall in this unbelievable exchange uh, between them after uh, maybe the you know the worst professional night of their lives. Did you kind of get that feeling like Cameron Crowe did that that was kind of like to get had, did you know that bef- had you heard that story before did or maybe it was another part of the story where you felt like wow I just got something out of him that that's going to live in baseball lore for a long time now. Well, a couple of interesting things along those lines. Number one, you know, I've got a lot of feedback on the story and it's so interesting because I've heard so many different people tell me their favorite part of the story was something completely different. It wasn't like there was one thing that everybody agreed on was just new or interesting. Each person seemed to take something unique out of it, which is pretty cool. Uh, and secondly, in terms of the Bobby Thompson game 1951, I had heard the story before about Vince Scully being there to hear this conversation between Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson. Now listen, I can hear that story over and over again because we're talking to someone who is giving us a first-hand account of, you know, in all likelihood, the greatest home run in baseball history, or certainly the most famous. So I wanted, I loved hearing the story, but one of my goals was not to have been tell nothing but stories we've already heard before. And the other part of that story from the same game was the one that really stopped me, and I certainly can't do it justice the way that Ben does because he's the world's best storyteller. But I had not heard the story that he was close friends with Ralph Franca and his wife. Right. And as the ball goes out of the ballpark, and obviously the polo ground is going crazy, everybody's, at least Giants fans, exhilarated about winning the pennant. Ben looks down and sees Ralph's wife, and open up her purse very slowly, unfold the handkerchief, and bring it to her face down her eyes, fold it, and put it back into the pocketbook. And to me, I had not heard that story before, and it struck me as just this, this priceless moment of humanity where Vince Scully, when he's just watched baseball history, even if he's a Dodgers broadcaster, he knows how big the event is. He's not focused on the event, but he's focused on the humanity of the event and the sadness of someone he cares about, Ralph Frank, his wife. Um, that really stopped me in my tracks. And hearing it didn't surprise me because, again, I think that's who Ben Scully is as a person. He's going to prioritize humanity over, um, you know, the big athletic event. But I hadn't heard the story before, and it, it spoke to me a lot about who Ben Scully is, that he would notice the moment and be moved by the moment. Yeah, and, you know, he, he talked about how one of the early pieces of advice that he had got in his career was to not get close to the players because things like that could happen. And, and, and it just happened to be that that was the one player that he kind of let his guard down. And I think he even goes on to say that when he was headed towards the clubhouse, he kind of had to step over his friend who was like laying, laying on the ground in, in despair, I guess. And um, it just really, it gave me chills. And... I thought about you a little bit sitting across from him and I wondered what about Tom Verducci? Does has Tom Verducci ever let his guard down to that extent with players? Does he have a similar anecdote? Uh, in terms of in, with players? In yeah, you know, of, like uh, letting yourself get close to a player maybe or because I know professionally 
Vince Scully's not unique in wanting to keep his distance necessarily. You know, but right. he did have this incredible anecdote about the time that he did get close and and it resulted in this. And I just thought about you sitting across from him and wondering if maybe it brought something in your mind of like, yeah, I had a similar experience, maybe not as dramatic. I don't know if you can get as dramatic as that, but Right. No, for me I think the closest that would be analogous to that situation uh, was when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004 and I had the assignment to write the Sportsman of the Year piece for SI. The Red Sox were chosen as Sportsman of the Year. And the Red Sox were a great story, obviously, but at that point they were a well-known and well-told story. You know, the bloody sock, the idiots, David Ortiz, the clutch hit. Um, you know, we spent a month basically finding out about this team and who they were and how they did what they did. And I was a little overwhelmed by trying to approach it with some new angle to let people know about this Red Sox team. And that's when I came up with the idea that it's really not just the World Championship and these players, but it's really a, a lifetime uh, a marking post for a lot of people in New England in terms of not just their generation, but even their parents and grandparents. And that's where I thought the heart of the story was. So I tracked down just these emails and letters that people had written to the Red Sox. And then started tracking down some of the people who wrote these letters that were very cathartic. And you couldn't help but be moved by the stories these people told. I'm talking about, you know, people who were dying and either lived to see the championship or didn't. And their survivors were left to uh, celebrate on behalf of their loved ones who were gone. Or people that were having babies born at that time and naming them after Red Sox players. Uh, it sounds corny, but the whole cycle of life was caught up around this baseball team in New England. And there were several stories that were quite moving. And I did stay in touch with a few of those people just to follow up on how some family members were doing or coping. And it really was, I think, sports at their best. Because if it's just about the scores, who won and who lost, um, you know, it's basically middle school gym class. Right. When sports work best, it's when there is a connection with society and the culture and the city and the, and the region. Uh, and it, at its best, it can be uplifting. It can be cathartic. Uh, and that's probably the closest uh, example I can come up with. It didn't involve a specific player, but uh, certainly involved a lot of people across the big area who waited a lifetime for the Red Sox to win. Yeah, I remember they had that on Sons of Sam Horn. They had that, like, win at four thread. I don't know if you remember that, um, where, like, the day of Game 7 of the Yankee series, someone started a, you know, win it for, you know, and it was basically anecdotes like that, this family member or that family member. And I think a similar situation like that was the the Saints in 2009-2010, too. Um, a lot of the same sentiment of what the city and the people in the city had gone through and how that championship had uh, maybe struck similar chords as the Red Sox won. Uh the sportscasts are here with uh, with Tom Verducci. Just a couple quick things on Vince Scully. Um, you mentioned in there that this kind of struck me. It didn't surprise me that he doesn't watch much, much baseball, that he's not calling. But he said almost that he never watches baseball. Like, does that mean he hasn't seen a World Series game since, like, 1988? Like, how extreme do you think he was being when he said he never watches baseball? 
I, yeah, I, I don't know that I took him literally at his word that he never watches baseball. Okay. <laughs> um, it, goes back, it goes back to something Red Barber had told him early on when he was starting out. And, of course, Red had the biggest influence on young Vince Scully than anybody. And Red just told him, don't try to copy anybody else, because if you do, you will water your own wine. And I know people who have gone up to Vince Scully. I'm sure thousands have to get career advice. And the best advice he gives them when these people come up and say, hey, I want to be like you, his best advice is, well, if you try to be like me, you'll miss out on being the best you you can possibly be. And I think he's always had that, going back to Red Barber's advice, that it's not good to copy someone else. Um, And that's part of it, I think, why he doesn't watch baseball. Mm -hmm. But I think the other part is, you know, he truly is a renaissance man. He's a voracious reader. Um, he loves musicals, actually all kinds of music, and I think, quite honestly, he has a lot of better things to do than to watch a baseball game when he's not working. Now, do I think he doesn't watch any games at all? Uh, no. I'm sure he probably flips through the channels, and as you mentioned, probably in a World Series setting, I'm sure he enjoys a game or two. Um, but on the whole, I think he's made it uh, pretty clear that he's not a baseball junkie just when it comes to watching a game for the sake of watching a game. We obviously know how uncomfortable he has been with, I don't know if we want to call it a farewell tour or whatever. And You know, I read something with Joe Buck talking about how he would love to uh, surrender the booth to Vin for an inning or so at the All-Star Game or at the World Series. Did you address this with him? Is there any chance he might do something like this or do you think that it's just way too uncomfortable for him to consider. Well, I wouldn't say there's no chance, but I think it's something that would be entirely out of character for him. Um, I, I would be surprised if that's something that he would agree to. You know, he's, his first rule of thumb is never put yourself in front of the game. And I think if Vince Scully were to parachute in to do an all-star game or a World Series game, he immediately becomes the story. And as I said, he's made a career out of not being the story. Uh, that being said, I'm sure nobody would check to it. We all would love to hear him call any game. Right. If he could show up at a Little League game and call it, we'd all be happy. But uh, I think it would be totally out of character for him, and I don't expect he would do something like that. I think he would be uncomfortable, actually. Well, I have to say, God, God bless technology for giving me the chance to listen to him as much as I have the last few years through Major League Baseball TV or the app or whatever. I mean, it's, it's really been a lucky time because, you know, someone who lives in Buffalo, New York, I, I would have missed it, you know? so um. Yeah, well, he's had, I mean, obviously his career spans such a length of time and certainly the changes in technology are just part of everything that has changed over time. But when you think about it, you know, he grew up in the golden age of radio. And that's when I think you learned about the gift of storytelling. Because back then, you had to paint a picture with words. There were really very few visuals. Very few people had television. In fact, I think then telecast the first World Series that was broadcast on television. Uh, so he learned the art of storytelling through radio. And then not only did he start doing games when uh, broadcasting television games, televised games became popular, but think about the most popular uh, heyday of baseball on television, really was in the mid-80s, certainly a 1986 World Series is a big part of it, the biggest audience to watch 
baseball, most of them were in the time Vince Scully was doing the World Series. Right. And now, of course, as you mentioned, with technology, you know, anybody with a connection can hear Vince Scully. So, you know, as iconic as he was in Los Angeles for all these years, now, you know, whole generations of people who never set foot in L.A. understand the greatness of Vince Scully, the great Dodgers announcer. And it just feels like such, <laughs> such a blessing that we were able to catch it. The sportscasters are here with Tom, Tom Verducci. He's nice enough to uh, be on the show for the fourth time. It's such an honor for us. Uh, just a couple more minutes off with him. I just want to ask you about one last uh, topic real quick. I was reading on SI.com uh, an article that you had, uh, had just authored about uh, the cliff year for pitchers and uh, the contract that uh, Steven Strasburg had signed. And I've been thinking it seems like all summer so far, spring, about pitchers and the arm. I read Jeff Passan's great book. Uh, not sure if you've had a chance to read it yet, The Arm, uh, and his deep dive into elbow issues and uh, handling pitchers. And I talked to Jeff uh, on the podcast about it for a while and um, been watching some incredible pitching performances this year, 20 strikeout games, um, things like pitchers being pulled out by Don Mattingly in the middle of no-hitters, um, uh, the dominance of uh, Jake Arrieta, who you also wrote in the magazine about, uh, Clayton Kershaw. And I've just been thinking about pitchers in general. And I was reading your, your piece about, about, about the cliff here. And the one thing I took from all this information is I feel like the more I take in, the less I know. What do you think you've gained to learn or understand about pitchers as we've all seemed to focus our attention so much uh, on the money they make, the innings they pitch, when they pitch them. What have you learned? What have you internalized as a guy who studies and writes about baseball? Pitching is better today than it's ever been. Uh, in fact, we're getting to the point where maybe it's too good. Um, you know, obviously the velocity, average velocity in the major leagues keeps climbing. The strikeout rate has gone up now for 11 consecutive years. If you think about it, what pitchers are doing is they're compressing the distance the time the ball is in the air from the mound to the plate. It would be as if in basketball that you lowered or raised the rim, or in football you changed the width or the length of the field. What baseball pitchers are doing is they're changing the 60 feet 6 inches because it's not about 60 feet 6 inches. It's about time and how short of the time it takes the ball to get to the plate. And it's never been shorter than it is now. Uh, and it's not just velocity, it's the ball spinning and cutting and breaking with velocity. I mean, Noah Syndergaard is throwing 95-mile-an-hour sliders. It's never happened in the history of the game. Uh, Aroldis Chapman is throwing over 100 miles on a regular basis. That never happened in the history of the game. What's happening is we live in an age of specialization, and it's a lot easier to teach pitching because you initiate the action with the ball than it is to teach hitting, in which is a reactionary uh, position, and you're at the mercy of what pitch is being thrown and where it is, and your ability to read and react has now been decreased. You just don't have enough time to read and react. So the advantage keeps swaying to the pitcher. Now the downside is we can teach people to throw harder, which we didn't think we could do before. We thought that was a God-given ability. But as you begin to teach people to throw harder, you put them more at risk, and especially young pitchers, because the body at 17, 18, 19 
it's really not equipped to throw a ball in competition at 97, 98 miles an hour, which we're seeing now from high school pitchers, and that's why we're getting Tommy John surgeries earlier. And that's why we're seeing these cliff years, I call them cliff years, yeah. where the stuff falls off the cliff in terms of especially power pitchers at 30, 31, and 32. Uh, velocity is a declining skill. It declines with age. So it stands to reason if you throw harder at a younger age, you're going to hit your cliff year at an earlier age. Uh, it's, a, it's a situation that I know people say is a problem in baseball. I actually look at it the other way. The surplus of pitching is so great that pitchers will continue to dominate. It's a shame that some of them are breaking down, but what we're doing now is we're incentivizing velocity from the amateur level on up. So it's about throwing harder, and we see now starting pitchers, it's about the same mentality relief pitchers have, which is you don't need to pace yourself. It's about velocity, maxing out, throwing as hard as you can, which often compromises mechanics. I think with all the attention paid to innings, uh, pitch limits, days of rest, what people continually miss is the poor mechanics that come into play. People are compromising their bodies and their mechanics in the search for more velocity. And most of these pitchers who are breaking down early, the Tommy John surgery especially, have really fundamental flaws in their delivery where they are breakdowns waiting to happen. Yeah, and you wrote about that on SI.com as a possibility with Noah Syndergaard as well. Um, well, well Syndergaard, I wrote that he's either, you know, a breakdown waiting to happen because velocity and spin at this rate is unsustainable, right. or he's an absolute physical outlier. Right. And I'm starting to believe he's the outlier. He might be the Nolan Ryan of this generation. Uh, I actually like the way he throws. It's a simple delivery. And, of course, he's built like an NFL tight end, so, you know, if size and muscle mass matters, he certainly has that on his side. I don't see a lot of the risks and red flags that I see with a lot of other pitchers because he has the size and the good mechanics. Uh, he's an extremely unusual case. Um, like I said, I, I have a feeling that he just may be a Nolan Ryan kind of outsider. And Mets fans would love to hear that. But do you think that maybe they're seeing the cliff year for Matt Harvey right now? Well, it's too early to say. I think it has, I wouldn't say, you know, he's still young enough. He still should have an extended prime. Right. It reminds me more of Cole Hamels in 2009, Jordano Ventura in 2015, Michael Waka in 2014, uh, Madison Bumgarner in 2015. When you take a young pitcher, a power pitcher, and you extend him through the World Series, and most of those cases where they haven't logged those kind of innings before, you're going to see the wear and tear show up the next year. And in every one of those cases, it's easily seen in their fastball. And I think that's what Matt Harvey is facing now. He clearly doesn't have the same life on his fastball. You can measure that in velocity and spin rate. And he's at wit's end in terms of where do I go without my A-plus fastball. Because he's always had it. And it's the first time he's slumped, and he doesn't have his best weapon, and he doesn't know where to go or how to get it back. And I think he may need to back off, because right now I think he's trying too hard to get his velocity back. Interesting. If we had a pitcher draft right now, would you pick uh, Arietta or Kershaw or someone else, just for this year? Uh, I would take 
Clayton Kershaw for this year, for five years, for ten years. I think he yeah. may be um, on the greatest run of pitching that we've ever seen. I think uh, you could say that about Pedro Martinez, and you know he had a six or seven year stretch of domination, but he didn't do it at the volume that we're seeing with Clayton Kershaw. Uh, and I've never seen someone extended for this long uh, without getting hurt, without having any down years whatsoever, even anything close to a down year. Tom Seaver had down years. Bob Gibson had down years. Uh, Pedro would take some days, take some days on the disabled list, or just be injured from time to time. This run of sustained greatness by Kershaw, I think, may be unprecedented, especially in the modern game. Such a stud. All right, the sportscasters, all done with Tom Verducci. So glad to have him back. No Twitter yet. I'm not sure if we'll ever get him there. Uh, but, of course, you can read his work on the pages of Sports Illustrated, uh, which can come in your mailbox or looks beautiful on the iPad, a great way to read it. And you can go to SI.com where there's even more uh, work from Tom Verducci. And if you get the Vin Scully piece that we talked about on .com, there's also a 17-minute video uh, that you can watch attached to that as well, which is fantastic. Uh, Anything else you'd like to plug or promote, Mr. Verducci? Uh, Well, still busy. You can catch me, too, on uh, Fox Games on Saturdays and also on the MLB Network. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Tom Verducci for being on the podcast today. I know the connection wasn't the best in the beginning there. And it's just one of those things that I can't really do anything about. I can't I can't really tell Tom Verducci to find a better connection. But luckily it did improve as the interview went on, and I'm sorry about that. Um, it is Thursday afternoon. Don and I recorded the bulk of the podcast yesterday on Wednesday. And I just hung the phone up with our next guest, Kenny Albert, uh, and finished that interview. Since Don and I recorded, of course, uh, the Western Conference Finals were won by the San Jose Sharks. Uh, So they're going to be in the Stanley Cup. And we talk uh, to Kenny Albert, who called that series for NBC Sports, uh, in a second here. And get his uh, view on the Sharks and maybe find out who they might want to see going forward. Uh, we stole 15 or so minutes of Kenny's time. Uh, so we'll get to that in a second. Before we do, a quick uh, update on the book club. The book club book of the month is Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. What Pop Music Rivalries Reveal About the Meaning of Life by Stephen Hyden. And I've been reading this book now. I'm about five rivalries in. And the second rivalry is actually Pearl Jam and Nirvana. And I'm not going to say that what uh, Stephen wrote in there is crap. Uh, per se, uh, but I do disagree with a lot of what he has to say about the rivalry. Uh, one thing I thought is he does paint a, a very childlike picture of Kurt Cobain. Uh, Kurt Cobain comes off as just a massive, uh, massive child in the uh, in the thing. Uh, one thing I think when we have hiding on that I'm going to want to do is just avoid that that section of the book and that topic because I think uh, we would just get a little bit too bogged down in that, as we often do when when Hayden's on. So, gonna try to avoid that. But so far, I'm enjoying the book. 
uh, many rivalries. Uh, rivalries I didn't even understand were as deep as they are, like Oasis versus Blur, uh, which uh, just didn't really register for a North American kid like myself, uh, since Blur really wasn't a famous band here at all. Um, they had that one hit that you hear at hockey games, uh, but other than that, they I never knew that they were a band that rivaled Oasis, so it was interesting learning about that and other things. Again, the book is called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. And it looks at uh, some of the biggest rivalries. The one I'm reading right now is Prince versus Michael Jackson. Uh, And it's interesting because it's written, obviously, before Prince had passed away. Uh, So it'll be interesting to talk to Stephen and find out how that chapter may have been or may not have been different uh, had that had not happened yet. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk with Kenny Albert. Uh, He's going to update us on what went down last night in San Jose and look ahead to the cup final, which he is calling for Westwood one. And then Don and I will be back uh, with one last thing. All right. Our next guest is from New York city, New York. And is a graduate of New York University. He's called baseball, hockey, basketball, and football in more places than I can recount. He just finished calling the Western Conference Finals for NBC Sports Network. And is getting ready to call the Stanley Cup Finals for Westwood One. He's making his 15th appearance on the show today. A Warren Sportscasters welcome to our good friend, Kenny Albert. What's up, Kenny? Hey, Steve. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Been Good, in- a little tired. Took the red eye home from uh, San Francisco last night. Haven't slept much, but uh, fun series and looking forward to the Stanley Cup final. You know, it's been an interesting. I don't know. It's been a really weird playoffs. It, interesting isn't even the right word. It seems like you know you had these weird quirks going in where you know there's no Canadian teams or something like that, and then it just seems like as the playoffs have gone on. It's been a year where teams that were used to succeeding with the core group right now have been getting picked off by teams that were used to failing. And that's going to set us up for a San Jose versus uh, Pittsburgh or Tampa uh, Stanley Cup. So you just called the Western Conference Final. Uh, What is it about this Sharks team uh, that has failed so often? with this core in the playoffs uh, that you think is clicking this season? Right. Well, first of all, you know, I think we've gotten so used to seeing teams such as the Kings and the Blackhawks and the Rangers the last three or four years yeah. make deep runs that it is a little bit of a shock to the system. Um, Tampa Bay obviously went deep last year all the way to Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, Pittsburgh, you have to go back to 08 and 09 for their uh, last runs all the way to the Stanley Cup final, and, and San Jose, it's the first time. So some new blood uh, with the Sharks advancing to the final for the first time in franchise history. Uh, but I, I think it's great. I mean, for the organization, 25 years now, 24 seasons of Sharks hockey, and they've come close on a couple of occasions. It was their fourth trip to the Western final. Of course, you look back to the 2014 first round when they had a 3-0 lead on the Kings. 
and L.A. came back and won that series in seven, so they've had some real tough uh, losses in the postseason with this core group. And they made the coaching change to Pete DeBoer, and he said on numerous occasions throughout the West Final, he said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the beneficiary. He said Todd McClellan was a really good coach, and they did some great things over the last seven years in San Jose. And unfortunately, they missed the playoffs last year, made the coaching change, and, and DeBoer comes in. And it's remarkable when you look at what he's done now with two franchises, the Devils missed the playoffs in 11, and the Sharks missed the playoffs right. last year. And in both cases, Pete DeBoer comes in, and the next season leads the team to the Stanley Cup final. But when you look at their core group, Thornton and Couture and Marlowe and Pavelski, so much playoff experience, and, and they finally break through and get to the Stanley Cup final for the first time. Uh, they added some pieces during the offseason, Paul Martin and Joel Ward, guys who have gone deep into the playoffs but haven't uh, you know, won the ultimate prize. And Then you look at the depth and, and what some of their younger players, Donskoy and Tierney and Wingles and uh, Nick Spalling, and, and uh, these guys have played so well. And you know, Even their third defense pair, Brendan Dillon and Roman Pollock, you know, they're tough to play against. They're big guys. And then they bring in a goaltender, Martin Jones, from L.A., mm-hmm. who didn't play much behind Jonathan Quick, but does own a Stanley Cup ring, and uh, he now has 12 wins in these playoffs. So it's it's a great story. Uh, the Blues had a terrific year as well. Whichever team advanced, uh, it would have been great for their fan base. Blues haven't been to the finals since 1970, and it was their first conference final since 2001. Uh, you know, they just looked, they looked a little tired and, and slower than the Sharks, and maybe they had some injuries, but it was a terrific season for St. Louis. They finally got by the first round after getting eliminated each of the last three years early. So, uh, kudos to the Blues, and congratulations to the Sharks. You know, it's a fairly obvious point, but I think to get this far, you need your stars to be your stars. And if that point was ever going to ring true, it's with the San Jose team. I mean, every night it's Pavelski, it's Couture, it's Burns. I mean, it just seems like every goal that goes in, it's like, oh, there's one of their stars stepping up again. And even in the, just this round, you saw the struggles of Tarasenko. Obviously, he got the two... Uh, A-Rod type goals uh, last night Um, and and maybe you know he had a great he did have a good run but it just like it just seems like a lot of the success of this Sharks team can be illustrated when you look at the stats of the stars of the team no absolutely I mean you look at the numbers in this series from Pavelski and and Thornton and Couture as you mentioned uh, Brent Burns had the two goals in game two after the Blues had won the first game. and But then you look at the other contributions. Joel Ward with four goals the last two games. Uh, Tierney had some big goals. Wingles had the game-winner in game two. So they, they got contributions from a lot of people. But you're right, Steve, the Stars carried the load. That top line of Thornton, Hurdle, and Pavelski, they, they were just tremendous. And then you had Couture and Marlowe and, and Donskoy on the second line. So um, – you have to give the Sharks a lot of credit. Their GM, Doug Wilson, you know, they stuck with it. They didn't trade any of those guys and brought in the new head coach, and here they are in the Stanley Cup final for the first time. What is the buzz like in San Jose? You've been down there. What's the, what kind of feel did you get? I, I know that, that Bay Area, uh, they got the Golden State thing going on as well over there, but what's the buzz like for the Sharks in the area? Yeah, no, it's been great. It's been exciting. Um, and I went to one of the Golden State games. I went to game two of their series with OKC, so I got to experience that as well as a fan. But, uh, you know, the Sharks have always had great crowds. 
the fans have supported them since the early 90s, and like I said, they've had some playoff disappointments, but it, it was loud in the building last night. Ken Hitchcock made an interesting comment earlier in the series. He said he's always enjoyed coaching in San Jose, and he's coached there before in the playoffs as well. He said the fans are in their seats watching warm-ups. They don't just show up for the game, and he said that's unique for an American city. It doesn't always happen where, where the fans are so focused during the warm-ups, so it's a, it's a great crowd, and, and you know they couldn't be more excited than uh, right now heading into the Stanley Cup Final for the first time. Going into Game 7 tonight, if you're a Sharks guy, who do you think that they, obviously they're never going to admit it, but there's got to be one of those two teams that you feel like they'd prefer. Is there one that... You know what, that's, yeah, that's a great question, Steve. I haven't really looked at, at the history as far as how they've done against those teams over the last couple of years. Um, I think either way, it should be a great final. You have a Tampa Bay team with the experience of having been there last year, and uh, Pittsburgh, some of their guys have been there. So I don't, I don't know if there'll be much of a difference uh, depending who they play, but uh, you know, bo- all three teams are, are speed teams. You look at the Sharks, yeah. you know, they're able to use their speed to exploit the Blues in this series, and uh, the Lightning of great speed, and the Penguins with some of the additions they made, Carl Haglin and Kunakel and a couple of the others, uh, and Sheary. Um, I think it'll be a fun series to watch as far as the speed element goes, no matter who they play. You got to figure that Mr. Batman and his uh, other suits in Manhattan are praying to the god of hockey that the uh, Penguins can pull us out tonight. I do not think. Well, that... you know, I'm sure they remain neutral and, and <laughs> yeah. obviously don't outwardly root. Uh, <laughs> Pittsburgh certainly, as far as TV ratings, you would think would yes. bring more eyeballs That's than I was uh, the Lightning would. But yeah. I think when a team like Tampa Bay. As the success they've had two years in a row, they certainly uh, gained more of a national following. They went all the way to the Stanley Cup final last year. Uh, they played uh, a terrific seven-game series with the Rangers last year. They played the Red Wings in the first round both years. So, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We know it'll either be San Jose-Pittsburgh or or San Jose-Tampa Bay. And uh should know, obviously, a, a couple of hours from now as we speak on, on Thursday afternoon and Either way, it should be a, a terrific Stanley Cup final. One last thing before we get too far away from the Blues. Uh, we'll start to wrap up anyway, but when you look at the Blues, you know, you mentioned how they finally got over the hump of the first round, and we knew that that division was great. I mean, and you look at how Nashville played in the playoffs on top of it. Uh, the top four teams from that division that qualified were all really good teams, and for them to have to get by Chicago in seven, and Chicago is such a difficult out. I mean, if you beat them, you have to beat them in seven, and you probably have to do it in overtime or by one late in the third like the Blues did. And then they had a fight through seven games against a really tough um, uh, Stars team. And now I've already heard talk about, was that enough, and should, should Hitchcock be fired? And I hope not, because I think that they look like a team that's on the brink of really putting it all together. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but if I were them, I'd be looking at the Sharks and thinking, let's just stay the course like they did. No, absolutely. I think Hitchcock's a terrific coach. He's won a Stanley Cup. He's had so much success in the league. He's the fourth all-time winningest coach. So uh, they're certainly on the right course. But you made a great point initially, Steve. It's, a, it's such a great division. And they had a battle to get by Chicago in seven and then Dallas in seven. And you hear some of the players and coaches after the game last night, and, and that you know, it could be one of the reasons why they lost to the Sharks, uh, because they had to go through those tough seven-game series. While the Sharks did have some rest after the first round, they beat the Kings in five. So 
uh, quite an accomplishment to get by Chicago and then Dallas. And again, there is there are some questions. David Backus is a free agent. Will he return? There are some other contract situations as well. Troy Brower, but um, St. Louis has a lot to be uh, uh, proud about when they look back at this season. They developed some terrific young players like Robbie Fabry and Colton Pareko, and right. uh, the goaltending tandem of Brian Elliott and Jake Allen had a terrific season. Tarasenko, although he struggled this round. He put up really good numbers the first two rounds. It was a major reason why they got by Chicago and Dallas, and he scored 40 goals during the regular season. So He's a star. You look at Tasney and Steen and Berglund. It's a terrific core. Alex Petrangelo, Bo Meester on the first defense pairing. So the division won't be easy next year. You have those same teams we talked about, you know, plus Nashville. But uh, I think once the Blues look back, it was such a disappointing ending when you're that close. But a uh, great season for St. Louis. Uh, let me ask you this about uh, Kenny Albert and, and his preparation. You obviously have a lot of experience going from TV to radio. Uh, tell us a little bit about hockey, what it's like. You've just called this whole series on TV. Now you're going to transition and call uh, the cup final on radio. What is that for, for the broadcaster? How do you have to prepare different? How do you have to execute different? Uh, what is it like? Uh, it's maybe something we don't think about, but... It's a different set of words that need to explain that game when you have the video and you don't. Tell us a little bit about right. how you make that transition. Well, the, the preparation, the actual game prep for me is the same. Uh, I'll, I'll do the same amount and same type of preparation, whether it's radio or TV. Uh, the main difference is how much I actually speak and describe during the game because on radio you really have to be the eyes and ears of the listener. They're, they don't see it at all unless they have the TV on and turn down the sound, of course, but... Um, a lot of people listening are in cars or listening on the internet that don't have access to a television. So you're a lot more descriptive. You know, is the puck in the near corner, the far corner, the red line, the blue line, center ice? Um, you're, you're describing a lot more of the uh, players that have the puck on TV. You don't have to describe every pass coming out of the defensive zone. And it's also more of a challenge on radio in uh, leaving time and space for your color analyst because. You don't want him to be talking when the puck's in the offensive zone or being brought up ice because something can happen that quickly, especially in hockey. So um, that that's probably the biggest challenge as far as radio versus TV. Uh, the other aspect of it is I've done hockey on the radio for about 25 years now, yeah. and TV, not all of those years, but many of them, especially recently. So I'm kind of used to going back and forth and having worked with Joe Micheletti this last series and once in a while during the season, and we traveled together with the Rangers, so... Uh, really looking forward to working with Joe on the radio side. He uh, he hasn't done as much radio in recent years. He's done some, and uh, he couldn't be more thrilled as well to be working the final for Westwood One. The sportscaster here finishing up with Kenny Albert. Of course, you can find Kenny on Twitter, uh, very simply, at Kenny Albert there. And as he's mentioned, he's going to be calling the uh, Stanley Cup final starting Monday, either in Pittsburgh or San Jose on Westwood One. Um, and you can look for that in your local market. Uh, after hockey, will you uh, get right into baseball and then get ready for football? Or what does the rest of the summer hold for Kenny Albert? Where will we find you? Well, that is certainly the plan. Um, actually, have a baseball game this Saturday in, in Washington for Fox, which has been scheduled for a while and happens to fall on the off weekend of, of the uh, hockey playoffs, which worked out very nicely. Um, I do have about seven or eight baseball games throughout the summer on Saturdays, certainly more time off this time of the year than, than the rest of the uh, calendar year. And then it'll be on to football for uh, Fox once again, beginning of September, and 
I'll do some preseason games for the Washington Redskins as well. So you got uh, a Nats game in Washington then? Nats game in Washington, yep, Nats and Cardinals. So I get to watch another St. Louis team this Saturday. <laughs> Nats and Cards and then back to hockey. And then, like you said, you got to get ready for football. Well, you get to watch Bryce Harper this weekend. That'll be fun. That guy is always I do. That should be watch. exciting. Yeah. So, all right. Well, it sounds good, Kenny. Thanks for taking a few minutes and, and talking hockey and, and keeping us updated on what you're up to because I, I don't know how you keep track of it all, but it's going to be baseball and then Westwood one for the hockey, and, and we're looking forward to the football. Uh, is, your, is, your, is your booth the same for football this year? Any changes there? Um. Not sure yet officially, Not but sure uh, I think it'll probably be the same. I've been with Moose Johnson for the yeah. last nine years, so I'm pretty sure that's the uh, direction that uh, we'll be in this year as well, but haven't heard 100%. Well, thanks for doing this, and uh, we'll hook up soon. Thanks, Steve. Enjoy the final, and hopefully we'll chat along the way. All right, I want to thank Tom Verducci for being on the podcast today. Uh, it's really an honor to have uh, Tom on uh, when he does make time for us. Uh, it's amazing he's done it four times. Uh, i also like to thank our other guest, who at this moment I'm pretty sure is going to be Kenny Albert. And whether it is or isn't Kenny, uh, it's just as uh, notable to mention what a great human being Kenny Albert is and yeah. how kind he is. He's always great, too. Uh, so I want to thank uh, the guests today. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and our last podcast uh, on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find our shows on Stitcher and iTunes Podcasts and uh, Podcatcher and whatever else you use to watch pod- listen to podcasts. And if you can't find it somewhere, let us know, and we'll try to make it happen for you. Uh, you can email us, as many of you have uh, in the last two weeks, wondering where the fuck we were, uh, at thesportscasters at gmail.com. And, of course, you can tweet us at sports underscore casters or at Don Like Sports. And uh, also, if you uh, have a good idea, you think you want to pitch a guest idea, definitely go to Don uh, for sure. Uh, at Don Like Sports is definitely the place uh, to go. If you have a cartoon maybe even that you think would be a good guest, uh, go to Don and he'll take care of you from there. All right. One last thing for me this week. Uh, I'm going to start off by saying I know articles like this are clickbait. Uh, it's ev- it's from the USA Today section for the win, I guess. I okay, yeah, I like for the win. They okay. wrote about uh, Deitch and I. Oh, did they? Okay, yeah. cool. So that's kind of like their page two. Yeah. Or, okay. Um, and I don't know the author, Stephen Ruiz, but uh, he did an article. You don't know him personally then? I don't recognize his work <laughs> either. <laughs> okay, I don't know this author. But uh, he did an article on the 32 teams, uh, the most embarrassing jersey to own for every NFL team. And the reason I figured I'd talk about this, because like I said, I know it's kind of clickbaity stuff, but uh, he admitted he did not go with the obvious for the Patriots or the Panthers, which is good, I suppose. But uh, what? The, he didn't. I think he's saying he didn't go with uh, the two guys that murdered. Somebody. Oh, okay. He didn't. <laughs> Ray he didn't Caruth for Ray or, Caruth or uh, Hernandez. Hernandez. Gotcha. But. Uh, I know you're not going to like the one he picked for the Saints. Well, I'd be shocked if he didn't pick Aaron Brooks. It was Aaron Brooks. And that's ridiculous because it's so revisionist. Isn't he arguably like the easily the second best? Second best? Okay. And it's like 
Well, I should be embarrassed because that one bad play during the Katrina season where he like threw it backwards or whatever. Right, like right. that, this whole career comes down to the bad shit that happened to him on the field when the team didn't have a home. We're playing home games in three different stadiums across the world, and we're dealing with Katrina in the city. Like, okay, so I have to be embarrassed because Aaron Brooks had a really bad year that year, and there's a couple embarrassing highlights associated with it. Right. I mean, what quarterback would be okay to wear? He's also Drew Brees. He's also the first guy to ever win a playoff game with a team. Right. You know, he's the first guy to give, like, hope. You know, I, I, I know I, I started playing fantasy football back then, and he was at least fantasy relevant. You know what I mean? Like he was. A, there's so many other quarterbacks I can think of. Like, why wouldn't it be more embarrassing to wear a Steve Walsh jersey? Who's or, the guy or that a Billy him, Joe Tober jersey? Yeah, he's the one that knocked himself out. In the end zone, or, right? or Billy Joe Tolliver. Right. Like those guys aren't more embarrassing than than Aaron Brooks. Do you have a number one no-brainer and most embarrassing jersey for the Saints? Yeah, I think it would be Jonathan Sullivan. I'm not sure I remember. He is a defensive tackle. There was a year the Saints had two first-round picks, and they used the two first-round picks to move up to the sixth pick to pick a guy named Jonathan Sullivan from Georgia, who eventually is probably most notably known for being kicked out of the press box in New England for hoarding all of the food on a game where he was a healthy scratch. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I think they whiffed on the Bills, too, by the way. Who do you think they picked? I think they picked O.J. Simpson. No, they didn't pick O.J. Simpson. And I guess they could have just automatically ruled him out the same way. Oh, okay. They, but he didn't He didn't specify that he ruled him out for that reason. So then I would think they should pick... If they didn't pick O.J. Simpson, I would say you pick Scott Norwood. They did pick Scott Norwood. Yeah. And I think that's kind of wrong. I mean, the Bills kind of... Uh, the community kind of rallied around Norwood after that and he was like one yeah of, but then they showed him the door quickly sure they were nice to him when he came home but then they got you know I mean he played that the, played next, the next season year, yeah. he won a playoff game playoff right? game yeah so I mean that, I think that's that's kind of low-hanging fruit I think the Bills obvious one is Aaron Maven like that's just a horrendous right. pick I think the problem with like our picks is you have to know our teams yeah you know like we, See, Maben, I we would, know that Maben and, and, and Sullivan are embarrassing. Yeah. But if you just wore like a Maben jersey out, like someone might just think it's like a cool throwback. <laughs> See, I wouldn't have thought about Sullivan because that doesn't feel – but, I mean, you said he was a first-round pick too. Yes. Yeah. yeah so. He's a top-10 pick. You know? Yeah. He's like sixth, I think. So that that would be bad. I mean, because you was, can go with like J.J. <laughs> Hardy from the Bills or something like that. or You know how on message boards they'll pin threads? Yes. Well, for a whole year on the Saints message board, there was a thread pinned, and the title of it was, How Fat is Jonathan Sullivan? <laughs> and it was just pages and pages of people updating the obesity of J- poor Jonathan Sullivan. A few of these that I think are no-brainers. Like, I think Jamarcus Russell. I, I don't think there's an argument. And uh, who was the other one? Ryan Leaf, I think. is. All right. we're, we're really, I can tell our sensibility is to lean towards draft busts. Sure. Where there's more, of, there's probably an argument to be made of like guys who just humiliated the franchise. Like for the Cowboys, is Leon Lett a really good pick for this? Now he won it Super Bowls a, there and he was really good. Yeah. He also had two humiliating plays sure. as a member of the team. Sure. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Like for the Sabres, uh, like a Slava Kozlov jersey, a guy that just hated his time. The here. guy I would think of for the Sabers is, um, oh, the guy they traded for the one year, Bob Corkum. Uh, no, who am I thinking of? The guy they signed from Philly. 
the big oh Ville Leno. Yeah, Leno. yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a guy that had a decent career, but Ugh. as a saber was horrible. Yeah, that that would be. You're right. We both are leaning toward draft picks. It'd be interesting to kind of come up. The Titans had Randy Moss. Uh, <laughs> Forgot was, even played there. Right. So that was kind of his for them. Interesting. All right. One last thing for me today, and everyone knows I think I'm an Apple guy. Yes. I like Apple. Of course, I miss Steve Jobs. Rest in peace. Uh, I have had no beef, generally speaking, with Tim Cook until today. Uh, there's an article on Yahoo by an author. I don't know. I don't know the author. <laughs> uh, um, but according to uh, Tim Cook, the iPhone was invented nearly 350 years ago. Okay. Um, uh, during a chat at the Startup Fest event in Amsterdam on Tuesday, uh, Cook spoke uh, to a bunch of people on topics ranging from health to the future of TV. But the pair shared an anecdote from the night before uh, when uh, the European commissioner took Cook uh, to a museum in Amsterdam. Did you happen to know, Tim, where and when the iPhone was created? The Apple executive explained that in one painting at the museum, he thought he saw the subject holding an iPhone. Mm. You know, I thought I knew until last night. Last night, I was taken uh, over to look at some Rembrandt, and in one of the paintings, I was shocked. There was an iPhone in one of the paintings, Cook jokingly explained. Uh, I th- it's tough to see, but I swear it's there. So now I think he's joking and be being silly. lighthearted. Yeah. But when I read this, it made me think of another uh, a story that is not a joke. There is a picture circulating on the internet of a fan watching the Mike Tyson versus Peter McNeely fight. And allegedly, he is from the future because he's taking a picture of the fight with a smartphone. <laughs> oh, yeah? So, like, right now, if you Google Tyson Tyson McNeely fight smartphone yeah it comes up comes right up a story about how people seriously think there's someone holding now apparently it was really quickly debunked uh, by someone researching cameras in the time and finding one that looked exactly like what this person's holding okay but conspiracy theorists who think that the government blew up 9-11 and you know that We'd never walk down the moon, have a new uh, feather in their cap, and it's that time travel exists and we have proof because Tim Cook saw it in a painting at an art museum in Europe and some guy went, of, of all places, went to watch Mike Tyson versus Peter McNeely and blew his cover when he took out his iPhone. People are watching all sorts of past Mike Tyson stuff. They're not maybe a... Less than a month ago, it came out that someone discovered like a trick, like a hidden Easter egg in Mike Tyson's punch out. I saw that, yeah. Like there's this guy in the audience, and that if when he, he ducks moves, his head, you, you can knock the guy out. Punch yeah. the guy, and he gets knocked out. So yeah, apparently watching old Mike Tyson media is the thing to do now. So time travel exists. What doesn't, what isn't clear is why a person empowered with time travel would choose Peter McNeely versus Mike Tyson. Mm-hmm. As his destination, because he presumably said, knows who's going to win. Time travel already too. So he's just there, like, is he just there gambling on it? <laughs> he wanted a picture for posterity. 